The uh, scripture reading this morning is Acts 18. It's on the screen behind me and in front of me. 1823 to 26. And it's uh, following the story of Paul as he's traveling around. One of the first traveling preachers, I guess. It starts out that after spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him into their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. There is a handout that is about to go around. So you can uh, take one of those as they get to you. I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 18. It is a, a rather audacious thing whenever anybody uh, says that they have the truth. So if you go to just about anybody today and say, and especially if you say something like this, like if I looked at Andrea and I said, Andrea, I know the truth about this and you don't. Then in our world, especially Andrea is likely to come back to me and say, oh, yeah, well, I've got the truth and you don't. And then if I did that with uh, 15 people and they all kind of had the same kind of response in terms of, oh, yeah, well, you have the truth, you think, but I have it. Eventually, somebody is going to stand back and say, there's no such thing as truth anymore. Or they'll ask a question that was asked a long time ago when Pilate looked at Jesus and said, what is truth? And we just act as though there is no such thing today as truth. And by the way, when you get that outline or the um, handout, you can just set it down for the moment. We'll look at it here in just a little while. So it's an audacious thing these days, especially when somebody says, I have the truth. People don't like to hear that. Our whole society kind of runs against the idea that anybody has the truth on just about anything. Now, the one exception to this might be if somebody has substantial scientific evidence for something or mathematical evidence for something. And so they'll, you know, there's always some new scientific or mathematical truth that's being discovered. And someone will say, we finally have the truth on this particular thing. The one that struck me most recently was, uh, I can't remember, it was in the fall, maybe early fall or summer, that uh, there were some scientists who purported to have found something that would move faster than the speed of light. Was it a neutrino? Somebody, somebody is going to know. Some scientist out here is going to know exactly what I'm talking about. I think, they're, I think they were neutrinos. And they said, we finally found something that moves faster than the speed of light. And so they, you know, they made this big uh, announcement in Europe somewhere. Neutrinos have been discovered and they're faster than the speed of light. And then I, I noticed just in the last couple of days, no, other scientists now are saying that that's not the case. So... One of the things that we have determined, especially in the last 50 years, is that science itself all the time is found to make not just mistakes, but to sometimes wonder whether or not there is any sense of finality about truth, even in the world of science. Because ultimately, your conclusions are going to be 
governed at least partially by the person who is evaluating them. And so it depends on what science happens to be looking at the results. And that one scientist looks at a set of what we think are fairly objective results, and it looks like we've got the hard and fast truth here, and then we determine, no, actually, that was just the case because it was a particular scientist who was looking at those results. So science, not even science, can establish truth for us today in a way that we think is absolutely solid. And so we live in a world in which truth, and this seems so strange, truth is said to be negotiable. Like, what a strange idea. The truth itself is negotiable. That we can't tell. It's all dependent upon who happens to be looking at whatever they're observing. And that's what establishes truth. Well, I don't know about you, but I am relatively certain. No, I'm absolutely certain that this is not the way that we should think about our faith. That there just isn't room for us to be constantly negotiating what the truth is when it comes to what we believe. And I would say that when Jesus revealed God to us, that he revealed something that is absolutely true. And in my own life, and I think I speak for most of you, this is not something that I'm ready to negotiate. The notion of whether or not Jesus revealed the Father. I absolutely believe this. I absolutely stake my life on it. That God revealed himself in Jesus and that we have seen in this a truth. The truth that comes from God revealed to human beings about God and his relationship with us. What he wants for relationship with us. So it's an audacious thing for us, it's an audacious thing for me to stand up in front of a group of people, even in this case, I think you would agree with me. But it's a bit audacious for me to stand up and say, I believe in an absolute kind of way that there's a truth in the universe and that Jesus is it. That God has revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ and this is absolutely the truth. Our world doesn't like to hear that. And so today... It's, it's almost a strange thing to say it, and one almost wants to duck after they say it. Somebody's going to be going after you when you say that there is absolute truth. Well, Paul finds himself, as we saw last week, in a culture that's not that much different from ours. In the city of Athens, there were all those truths that were being proclaimed, and he went right into the lion's den, right into Athens, and he speaks the truth about Jesus. And they challenge him on it. And... Finally, at the end, when he starts talking about resurrection, they kind of almost scoff and say, resurrection. Some of them believe it, but there's an awful lot who don't. Well, we find Paul going from town to town throughout the Mediterranean world, again, going into these centers of learning, sometimes the synagogue, and saying to people who believe something, I don't believe any longer what you believe. So he goes into the Jewish synagogue again, into the city of Corinth, and expresses a truth about Jesus. And he does it right in the face of people who at this point have not yet believed that Jesus is Messiah. So look at me with me at uh, chapter 18, verse 1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens. So he leaves this center of learning. 
and went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, it's interesting, by the way, this happens in 49 AD. We know this historically, that Claudius told all the Jews to get out of Rome. They'd had so much controversy stirred up about this Christus, this Christ, within the city of Rome, that Claudius finally says, just get them out of here. And he drives the Jews out of Rome. Now, what's interesting, too, about that is it gives us a pinpoint in time for when Paul's ministry was taking place. Because if Claudius did that in 49, and this says that very recently after that, Paul goes to Corinth and finds Priscilla and Aquila there who've been driven out of Rome by Claudius because they're Jews then we know that this is early 50 or so, maybe late 49, early 50, that Paul finds himself in Corinth in the synagogue speaking to the Jews. So Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, it says, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And of course, these Greeks would be the believing Greeks, the ones who'd go to the synagogue and would hear about God, the God-fearing uh, non-proselytes, yeah, they're not Jews, Greeks, but they're believing Greeks. So Paul finds himself going into the synagogue and reasoning with them about Jesus, going in and saying, I have the truth about Messiah. I'm telling you who Jesus is. Now, that doesn't go down so well with all of them. Um, verse 5 says, When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And so Paul finds himself opposed. And again, now he's done this once before. This time again, he says, I'm just going to the Gentiles. Now, what we're going to find is that even though Paul says, I'm just going to go to the Gentiles now, and he is certainly the apostle to the Gentiles, he can't hold himself back from going to the Jews because he loves them. They're his people, and he wants to keep preaching to them. So even though he says, my ministry with the Jews is over, he still, nonetheless, continues to go to them. Look at verse 7. It says, Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. So he's a uh, Gentile who still goes to the synagogue and worships God, even though he's not a Jew. And then it says, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. So there is actually some positive result here. As Paul goes into this place, preaches in the synagogue, converts some Gentiles, and then even the synagogue ruler, it says, became a Christian in this case. So he goes and finds this person, and a, and a prominent Jew is converted to Jesus Christ. So there is some effectiveness here within the city of, of Corinth, um, although there continue to be problems. So Paul, I won't read the rest of this right now, but Paul uh, is eventually arrested. Uh, there are problems. He's taken before a uh, court, and they decide the court does. No, I don't want to deal with this right now. Look at verse 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. And what I want you to see is I've got a map up here for you to actually see what's going on here. And I know this is confusing. There's so many cities up there. But you'll notice over here on the right, it says Antioch. 
That's where Paul started his second missionary journey. And he travels along a green line to Issus and Derby, and then up, and you'll see a green line go up high and eventually to Troas and then across to Philippi. And you might remember then he went to Thessalonica and Berea. That's where the people were quite willing to study. It said the Bereans were of noble character because they were willing to investigate whether or not the things Paul was saying were true. And then he travels down the coast on the right-hand side of Greece, eventually down into Athens. And then he goes to Corinth. You can see where Corinth is with the, the two circles there. And that's where we find him at this point, is that he's gone to Corinth. And he spends about a year and a half there in Corinth talking to the people about Christ. And this is where he meets Priscilla and Aquila. They have come across from Rome. They've been kicked out of Rome. They've traveled to Corinth. And that's where he meets Priscilla and Aquila for the first time and really makes great friends of these people. It's a, it's a fascinating story, uh, just them being sent out of Rome and then finding themselves in uh, Corinth and then making great friends uh, with Paul and contributing to his ministry in a significant way. So then if you look at verse... Uh, again, in the middle of verse 18, he's there with Priscilla and Aquila. And then it says they got ready to leave before he sailed. He had his hair cut off at Sincrea because of a vow he had taken. That's a Nazarite vow that Paul had made. So he, he needs to cut his hair there. He does that. And then it says in verse 19, they arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue. So there he goes again. He says he's done with the Jews, but he goes into the synagogue. He himself goes into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I'll come back if it's God's will. Then he set sail uh, from Ephesus. And when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went up to Antioch. So you can see Paul goes full circle. He goes from Antioch around into Greece and then eventually across to Ephesus. And then he comes back and he goes down to Caesarea, it says, which is down here on the right. And then he travels back up to Antioch where his missionary journey started. And so we, we come here to the completion, really, of the second missionary journey and preparation for the third. Well, I started here talking about truth. And the point is this, that Paul, throughout his missionary journey, again, finds himself in these inhospitable places where he goes into synagogues. And he goes into Athens, right in the midst of the philosophers. And every time he goes someplace, there is somebody ready to attack him. They, they beat him. They arrest him. Uh, they bring him before magistrates. He has to leave the city in the middle of the night in order to not be captured. He finds himself traveling from place to place because of people who don't want to hear what he has to say. Well, I don't know that we're going to get to that point in our society. But sometimes I must admit, I wonder. Like, what will it be like, not five years or ten years from now, but what will it be like 200 years from now? What will it be like in North America 200 years from now when someone wants to stand up and say, I believe with all my heart, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and I surrender my life to Him as Lord. Will there come a time when, like those ladies that we saw a few weeks ago in Indonesia, 
when we might be arrested for our faith and put in prison because we're simply trying to teach children about Jesus? It won't entirely shock me if that's the case. There are places around our world right now where it is not safe to share and discuss Jesus openly. If you've looked at the most recent National Geographic, I saw it just a couple of days ago on the newsstand. There was a story in there about Christians in India who find themselves having to meet underground because they live in a certain area of India where there's recently been persecution of Christians. Now, when I think of India, I don't automatically think of a place that persecutes Christians. And in fact, when I think of Hindus, I don't automatically think of a people who persecute Christians. But recently, what happened was there was a large group of Hindus in this particular province in India who decided that they were no longer going to tolerate the Christian teaching that, were go- that was going on, and they, they attacked and killed 60 Christians in that particular region. And so this National Geographic article that discusses this has at one point a photograph of these Christians in India meeting underground in order to try and avoid attack by these Hindu extremists. And while we think to ourselves, well, that couldn't ever happen in North America. It just wouldn't. Do we really know that for a fact, that it's never going to get to that point? I think it's possible that it will. Maybe, I mean, people theorize about what will happen at the end of time and what it will look like. Persecution of the church, perhaps, coming at the end before Christ comes. That's a possibility. And if and when it does, it's going to be so important that we as Christians be willing to both know and to stand for the truth of Jesus no matter what. Now, again, I don't know that it's going to happen in my lifetime. I doubt that it will. I doubt that it will happen in my grandson's life. But it's a possibility that someday this will happen for us. Which means that right now, it is so important that we understand that we know that we're firmly grounded in the truth of Jesus. That we're teaching that truth to our children. And that our children can understand fully who Christ is. And that the faith can be passed on in a way that will stand strong. Not for this generation, but for the next and next and next and next. So one of the things that we haven't done in a couple of years now. Is talk specifically about the things that we believe in some kind of concise, complete way. If you look at the handout that I've given you this morning, you'll find that that's what is represented here. At the top, it talks about a what we believe kind of statement. There are 12 major points of belief. And then you'll find after that a section that talks about controversial matters, because there are controversial matters within our body of Christ. And this statement's been established now for a couple of years. Uh, It was uh, almost two years ago now that the elders stood up here and uh, read this statement, or at least made this statement available and talked about uh, our new mission and vision and where we were going. 
And so I wanted to, to have another look at this this morning, put it into our hands, make sure that everybody has access to this. It's actually on our website as well. So you'll find the same statement on our website, but you have it in a hard copy this morning. And this is a compilation of the kind of things that we believe to be true about who our God is. And I'm not going to go through this. You're going to find at the beginning there a statement about God and his Trinitarian character. You're going to find a statement about who Jesus is. You'll find a statement about the Holy Spirit and about the church and about what it means for us to be a Christian. You will find a statement in there about even giving because we believe that it's part of a disciple's responsibility to give to the work of the church. You'll find statements there about unity and the desire to have unity exemplified within our body. There are all kinds of things that you're going to find in there, uh, again, both in the first 12 kind of non-negotiable statements and then the ones that come after that in which we think there is some discussion uh, that needs to be had uh, where there's some room for for, uh, differences of opinion because issues are controversial. So you have that. I want you to be able to take that home today and you can go reflect on it and uh, see what you think. Now I want you to look at verse 24 in chapter 18. Paul is gone. He's left, he's moved on, headed back to Caesarea and then to Antioch. In verse 24, it says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos... A native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. Now you'll recall that Priscilla and Aquila are left behind by Paul in the city of Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him, the way of God more adequately. And my point with this is simply this, that we all need to have some sense of what it is that we believe. Like I'd like to think that nobody will take our statement of faith away with them today and just put it in a drawer and ignore it. Instead, I'd like to think that you will take the statement of faith And look at the scriptures that are at the bottom of each statement. That you'll consider it for yourself and take it seriously. And recognize the responsibility that all of us have. Notice that Paul is gone. Apollos comes as a teacher into the city of Ephesus, but he knows only the baptism of John. And so Priscilla and Aquila take Apollos aside and they say, we're going to show you some things that you don't understand. And they do. It's interesting, this happens just a chapter later again with Paul as he's back in the city of Ephesus. And he does the same thing with some other people who only have the baptism of John. And the text says they didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit. Can you imagine that within the first years, the early years of the church, we have somebody who knows only the baptism of John. And then a chapter later, we've got people who don't even know, haven't even heard That there is a Holy Spirit. It doesn't take that long for the truths of the faith to be gone from understanding if we don't focus on those. 
And so it's, it is everybody's responsibility. It's all of our priorities to take seriously the truths of the faith and to cling to those. And so I'm hoping, I'm praying that you'll take that seriously, that you'll look at the statement and again, look at the scriptures, see what it is that you believe and know for sure that there is a truth about Jesus that we can communicate to our world about who he is. There may come a time when we can't do this openly. There might come a time when persecution becomes a reality for us. I, I pray it doesn't, but it's a possibility. Will our children know the things about Jesus that they need to know and understand that can be passed on from generation to generation, the truths about Christ? I pray that they do. It falls on us. It's our responsibility to know these things, to teach them, and to pass them on. I'm grateful for Priscilla and Aquila that they did that with Apollos, that they straightened him out. It's interesting as you read the rest of the text, which we won't do right now, Apollos leaves from, from Ephesus and he goes back to Achaia, the region where Paul had been around Athos, Athens and Corinth. And he preaches and he teaches there. And the text specifically says that he was of great help and assistance to the church in Achaia. Well, why did that happen? It happened because Priscilla and Aquila were able to take him aside and teach him some things. And because they were able to, he was of great benefit to the churches in that area of Greece and continued the legacy of Paul. And we need to be people who can, wherever we go, pass on that legacy and have a positive impact on those who need to know the truth. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would bless us, uh, that we would always be a body of people who clings to the truth. Help us to understand the things that are central to what it means to be Christian. Help us to proclaim Christ with boldness, uh, no matter what's happening around us. Father, there may come a time when we find ourselves persecuted. We know that we have brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing that even today. It's, it's not our lot, but it's theirs. Help us, Father, to, if we ever come to that point, be as strong as they are in proclaiming the truth about Jesus. We pray these things through Christ. Amen.